Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine here in New York City. Joining us today is Dr. Bradley Freeman, Associate Professor of Surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. The topic today will be tracheostomy in the ICU, specifically in the surgical ICU, and our topic will be a paper that will be forthcoming in critical care medicine, the title of which is Examination of Non-Clinical Factors Affecting Tracheostomy Practice in an Academic Surgical Intensive Care Unit. The citation for this article will be Critical Care Medicine, 2009, Volume 37, Number 12. Thank you so much, Dr. Freeman, for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Um, as I was saying to you before, I've had the distinct honor of writing the editorial uh, for this paper, so I've had to uh, read your paper inside and out, and I've been a huge fan of your previous work as well as this work. And having worked myself um, in a surgical ICU, especially as a medicine person for the last seven or eight years now, this concept of who gets a trach and the timing of trach um, is an important and challenging one. And I just wanted to make a couple intro points and then hand it off to you. Um, As you know uh, better than I, this can be a very emotionally charged issue where it can become very clear to people like you and me that this is a tool that can help somebody through a bout of respiratory failure, but you get Uh, you will often have discussions with other members of the team, other clinicians that may be involved with the care of the patient that will get a sense of tracheostomy as failure or, or, uh, as I wrote here, oh, come on, just one more chance to extubate the patient. And um, one of the reasons I was so uh, excited about your paper is clearly uh, you don't feel that way. And, And the focus here there were two issues. One of the challenges is that it's been more difficult than I would have imagined in the literature to really close the book on the benefits of tracheostomy. And then one of the other main points of your particular paper was taking a somewhat unique approach at trying to solve disconnects between what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing. So if you'd like to take it from there, that would be great. I think that's, I appreciate the uh, very positive comments. Uh, and I think that that uh, really uh, crystallizes the discussion around tracheostomy very succinctly and insightfully. And, and one of the things that we and others have uh, uh, described uh, in, in a variety of uh, analyses is just the, dr- dramat- the tremendous or dramatic variation in tracheostomy practice uh, with institution to institution, as well as within an institution amongst uh, various disciplines, meaning uh, in our prior work, for instance, we found that uh, uh, practitioners of trauma, as well as in trauma patients, this procedure appears to be used rather rather liberally, and in converse, and certainly in the medical ICU specifically, in various subsets of patients, it's used very, uh, very sparingly. And then certainly everywhere in between, and I think that reflects uh, a, a lot of factors. Uh, number one, I think there's there continues to be ambiguity in the literature and within the critical care community as to the actual benefits. 
And on the other hand, the risks of this procedure. And while there are a number of uh, clinicians, such as uh, possibly you and I, who view this as a tool to facilitate mechanical ventilation, whether it, it aids patients getting off mechanical ventilation, it's uh, a mechanism uh, to enhance a patient's comfort, uh, a way to, to mobilize patients, if you will. I think there are certain individuals who who view this still as a major operation and, in, a, in essence, uh, uh, there's a psychological block as, as to performing tracheostomy. And uh, so I do think that there's a huge uh, disparity of practice uh, in the community uh, as, as to how this is utilized, and that really formed the, the foundation for what we've tried to do. That is attempting to, within at least one institution and within one ICU, develop protocols as to how uh, it both in terms of selecting patients who are appropriate for tracheostomy, as well as the timing and the course of respiratory failure when tracheostomy would be performed, and in addition, uh, uh, trying to standardize the technique by which tracheostomy be, might be performed, that is, whether by surgical techniques or percutaneous techniques. So we've tried to come up with ways to standardize that, and, and intuitively, uh, one would think that this is something that would be very amenable to, to protocol. That is, in general, you could probably select patients who would be appropriate candidates for tracheostomy uh, if, you, if you really think about the various factors that would be involved. And once you've made the decision as to whether there would be a, an appropriate uh, candidate for tracheostomy or not, the way in, that, in which that should be performed, that is, uh, there are factors which might make a, a, a patient a, a better candidate for, say, percutaneous tracheostomy and conversely, surgical tracheostomy. So in our earlier work, well, we attempted to develop uh, care pathways or protocols uh, uh, to really guide those medical decisions. And one of the things that, that became obvious from that work is was, uh, number one, as has been demonstrated uh, by others in a variety of settings, it's, it's somewhat challenging to get care providers and clinicians to follow protocols and then uh, the, the second thing that, that became obvious to us was that, that we appeared to use tracheostomy fairly liberally, uh, and, and this is, that is something that really provided the background for uh, the current study. One of the other issues that um, remains sort of confusing for me is in my previous job and even in my current job when you see uh, maybe elderly patients or patients who may have underlying cardiovascular disease uh, the risk of failed extubations or perhaps people with difficult airways, it, it's just never made any sense to me at all to take a patient like that who, and, and I, I, I enjoy it when I'll have new trainees on my team, and they will universally say how much better a person looks the day after the tracheostomy. And, and I know that a lot of these issues have been formally looked at, and most of them collaborate with your intuition that patients have easier management of secretions, they require less sedation, and, and I will be standing on the team getting more and more worked up where I would have said, well, and it, because I will often run into some problems that you don't seem to in your unit where it will need to be sort of the permission of somebody else to get the trach and I will want it and somebody else won't. And I would say, you know, if, if you'd let me take this patient on Monday and it'll be Friday, I could have had this patient off the vent by now. And it's just, it's perplexed me. And I did a little bit of research on this on my own, uh, my other uh, job, confirming a lot of that, that different studies have shown either benefit with length of stay, 
but it's been difficult to show a mortality benefit. And those are some of the issues sort of before, again, as part of the background of a study like yours, right? I agree with that. I certainly agree with with uh, the, the global assessment by a number of individuals, both objectively and subjectively, that, uh, of the benefit of a tracheostomy with respect to comfort. And, and uh, interestingly, uh, I've had the experience on a number of occasions to go out to, to a patient's family member to obtain a, a surgical consent for a tracheostomy, and the most compelling salesman for tracheostomies turn out to be other family members in the waiting room whose who's, uh, loved one has undergone a tracheostomy and how much better they feel and their ability to interact more with the family members and, and in a lot of cases can, can uh, resume oral nutrition or more, or more mobile. So it's very interesting that uh, amongst non-clinicians uh, uh, that once a, uh, many family members have had the experience of, uh, of uh, dealing with a loved one first without a tracheostomy and then up with a tracheostomy, that uh, they, they begin to perceive it uh, very favorably. So that I, I, I do share uh, that experience, and, and that is not even something that one could measure in terms of uh, effect on length of mechanical ventilation and those uh, hard numbers, which as clinicians, obviously, we're very interested in. But it is, it is very interesting that, that amongst family members, uh, they ultimately uh, come around to viewing this as a very positive procedure. I thought I'd segue into letting you talk about this particular manuscript um, by actually quoting my own uh, my own editorial. Um, the The answer to selection for and timing of tracheostomy will not be solved by more randomized trials, but rather with quality improvement research. And I thought that was what to me was the aha eureka moment of looking over your manuscript was you really sort of broke the mold and said, you know what, uh, uh, although the gold standard are becoming randomized trials, here you said, you know what, let's look and see if we're even doing what we think we're doing. So maybe if you could take a few minutes and talk about your manuscript at this well, point. Well, I think that's a very insightful comment. And, and I think one of the uh, things that came out of our manuscript is one of the challenges of decision-making and, and feedback in an ICU. And uh, so, in essence, to provide a little background for this manuscript, uh, we, first of all, as I, as I alluded to earlier, we, when we critiqued our own data as part, part of a quality assurance uh, study, we found that our rate of tracheostomy seemed to be fairly high, meaning if you looked in our ICU, by day 20, virtually all patients who would, had re- remained on mechanical ventilation would do so with the aid of a tracheostomy. And we compared that to an administrative database of comparable ICUs and, and found that that rate of tracheostomy or rate of being supported with the tracheostomy was approximately two and a half fold higher than comparable units. And so we that, that uh, certainly uh, made an impression on us and we tried to further discern the background for that. So the, one of the things uh, we then did is uh, looked at this tracheostomy decision-making practice uh, amongst individual intensivists, and it turned out in our unit there was approximately 14 individual intensivists uh, who were all board-certified in their respective specialties who ultimately were responsible for major decisions in patient care, whether it be extubation or decision for tracheostomy. And we tried to discern whether there were individual differences uh, between those individuals based on uh, tracheostomy decision-making. And one of the things we looked at is the fraction of patients who passed objective benchmarks 
for extubation. In this particular case, uh, passing spontaneous breathing trials, yet failed to be extubated and ultimately underwent tracheostomy. And it turned out that approximately 40% of patients in our analysis passed their uh, spontaneous breathing trial on at least one occasion, yet underwent tracheostomy. And that, that seemed rather high for us. And we found, interestingly, that comparing amongst the various intensivists, that that rate of undergoing tracheostomy after having passed their spontaneous breathing trial varied amongst individuals. So that, that was somewhat interesting and, su- and suggested a, a few things to us. Number one, it appeared that many times the decision for tracheostomy is probably driven by non-objective factors, meaning uh, a clinician looks at a patient and says subjectively, I think a, I think a tracheostomy would be a benefit in this patient. That's not necessarily surprising, but uh, it, it is an objective measure that uh, there uh, is in inter-individual differences. And then we said um, uh, the interesting thing about a uh, the organizational structure of a large academic unit is that uh, there is a lot of turnover in personnel. There's turnover at, on the part of the attending physician. There's turnover on the part of a postgraduate trainees who rotate through the unit. There's turnover, certainly, in uh, nursing and respiratory therapist staff, et cetera. And that somewhat creates a dynamic where there potentially is a disconnect between decision-making and what you actually think happens, meaning uh, if I practice in isolation as a, as a single-care provider, I would have a pretty good idea as to uh, my complication rate or the consequences of my decision. But when you practice in an environment as part of a large team with a lot of turnover, it's certainly possible for a disconnect to develop between your decision-making and the outcome. And so one of the things we did was then survey these intensivists using an online, uh, online instrument to uh, try to understand what their perception of their tracheostomy practice was, specifically asking them what fraction of patients do they think they recommended tracheostomy for who had, in fact, passed their spontaneous breathing trial. And it turned out almost across the board that most intensivists underestimated their own practice. That meant that, mean, that meant means that most intensivists uh, thought the threshold for patients who were having passed a spontaneous breathing trial and undergoing tracheostomy was much lower than actually happened. So that somewhat reinforced to us that there was a disconnect between what people did and what they thought they were doing. And I think one of the take-home messages of our study, whether you're talking about tracheostomy or other interventions, is that to really put in place uh, care pass and best practice in an ICU, uh, one will probably have to have fairly rigorous methods of providing useful feedback to the clinician. And I think the other piece of this was because we did find inter-individual variation clinician to clinician, uh, the other aspect of that disconnect is that there's probably very little opportunity to know how one physician's practice stacks up to another one. So, So the other piece of that feedback loop would be not only knowing the consequences of an individual physician's practice, but how that individual physician's uh, practice compared to their peer operating, obviously, in the same ICU and operating, uh, obviously, as part of this team. I had a few comments. Uh, one is it, it varies tremendously also, uh, and again, this didn't apply so much 
But for example, I know in in trauma units and neurotrauma units, they may have protocols that you know day three, if they're not clearly extubated, a trach. Um, which, which I think is reasonable, um, especially if there are a lot of neurological issues. And I know you and I, I believe, spoken about this before, that you know somebody may pass a spontaneous breathing trial but may have a poor mental status and, and may that would be a reason, right? Right. But, but um, one of the other issues was that you in, in this paper, and we can segue into this now, developed a, a protocol. And my, my understanding was that you thought that might tighten up and decrease the incidence of a tracheostomy, but that wasn't what you found. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So one of the things that we found was that in our earlier work, when, when we began uh, trying to develop a protocol for patient selection, uh, you know, one of the things, first of all, one of the things we appreciated was that it is it, it is very difficult in the vast majority of patients to say on an arbitrary day this patient should undergo a trick. And the reason I say that is certainly if someone say has has sustained a devastating head injury where the neurologic prognosis is obviously grim and, and that's appreciated very early in the ICU course, it would certainly make a lot of sense to proceed with tracheostomy and possibly uh, enteral feeding access as a mechanism to, to get them to some setting outside the ICU where they can begin the recovery or, or it might even be custodial care. But if you look at the vast majority of patients that uh, undergo tracheostomy, the, the decision-making is a little dynamic. As an example, for instance, if you have a trauma patient that has had uh, some type of major abdominal catastrophe and they've had several trips to the operating room and you get them to the point where their abdominal process is, is contained, they might, at, from that point forward, very rapidly be weaned from mechanical ventilation. And that point might be day three, it might be day five, it might be day eight, but the... But the hurdle that is keeping them on mechanical ventilation is not so much respiratory failure, but it's their other uh, intercurrent processes. And once those are resolved, they would be rapidly weaned from mechanical ventilation. So one of the things we tried to integrate into this protocol was exclusions or thought processes, which took that into account. So in essence, we ultimately said that, you know, the decision-making for tracheostomy, if you tried to integrate it into a standard approach to weaning for mechanical ventilation is going to be a combination of days on mechanical ventil- uh, days on ventilatory support in addition to say sequential performance on on uh, weaning trials or spontaneous breathing trials and uh, the our protocol exact protocol obviously is in the manuscript and it's hard to uh, obviously articulate that without without the aid of graphics but that's one of the things we tried to integrate into that to get away from the from just being rigidly do it on day three, do it on day five, do it on day seven, because certainly there's going to be a large subsegment of the population which that might apply for. So as we tried to pilot this protocol, it was clear that uh, there was, the adherence was suboptimal. So one of the things we came up with was a way to streamline that that would make it very easy for clinicians and decision makers to uh, utilize this protocol and, and came up with the very streamlined uh, form, which in our current hospital uh, was a paper-based, but it would be very amenable to uh, an electronic record. And the logic of this was that, uh, you know, the decision-making for tracheostomy and, and to do this safely really can be condensed to a uh, fairly limited number of steps and decision points, whether the patient's on anticoagulation, 
uh, for instance, or what are their ventilator settings, or there's various there's various uh, uh, parameters which would say indicate whether the patient should have this done percutaneously or surgically. But as you allude to, uh, to make a long story short, as we implemented the, these kind of changes, if anything, it seemed to uh, to accentuate tracheostomy practice in our hospital. So, and in, in, in contrast to say doing it more prudently or selectively, I think if anything, it had the opposite effect. And I think that really speaks to the bigger question: is that there that when you try to implement protocolization of any procedure. Uh, or, or intervention, it has to be done in the context of providing accurate feedback and making sure there's good communication between all the members of the team as to the various pieces that go into the decision-making in the first place. I was wondering um, if you could talk for a couple of minutes about what happened to your patients uh, after they were trached. If I remember properly, m- most of your patients actually did well, and from what I remember, were decannulated prior to being discharged from the hospital and in a very short period of time. And just as a parenthetical comment, uh, having an interest in this, it, I think that's one of the more difficult areas in the trach research arena because uh, if you're a believer in this, that them coming off quickly is because we trached them, not that we shouldn't have trached them, if, if you know what I'm talking about? Sure. No, I think our own experience is the vast majority of patients are, uh, are, the vast majority of patients are totally liberated from mechanical ventilation, certainly prior to leaving our ICU, meaning that in our own practice environment, tracheostomy is not a mechanism of, to say, allow a patient go, to go to a long-term ventilator unit. So the, the vast majority of patients following tracheostomy in general within a few days, within a week or so or less, uh, are totally liberated from mechanical ventilation and fit, literally physically uh, many times are totally decannulated prior to leaving our ICU. And, and as you say, as you allude to, that, that really becomes the conundrum. One can look at that in one of two ways. Number one, that, that this truly is a, a tool to uh, facilitate weaning patients from mechanical ventilation. Or number two, why did you do a tracheostomy if someone was so close to being wean, liberated or weaned from mechanical ventilation? But I will say in our own unit, it certainly appears to be a tool to get people off the ventilator. And I think the challenge possibly for the community, and I think the research question is to really look at the cost effectiveness of that. In other words, you know, certainly one could probably put a price or a cost in, in some fashion, you know, on doing a tracheostomy in a given subpopulation of patients and trying to decide what the benefit of that is with respect to, say, decreased length of mechanical ventilation, uh, the effects on infectious complications. I think one would have to consider the potential long-term complications of tracheostomy, such as subglottic stenosis or something like that. But one, I, I think we are getting to the point, uh, and I think there's enough interest in this, where you can really start putting very discreet outcomes on this question in addition to all the other you know, more subjective factors, patient comfort, interaction with family, and those sorts of things. And I think this is a, continues to be a very interesting uh, area of study, and, and I think, that, again, that's evidenced by the fact that there's just so much diversity in the critical care community as to how this this fairly common procedure is practiced. Um, we're almost at the end, but I wanted to ask a question, and then and I'll give you then the concluding uh, section. Is so so in your particular unit A? Can you just go over a little bit about 
how the decision is made in terms of the staffing? And two, uh, do you actually do these uh, procedures yourself? And, and then the are they done at the bedside percutaneously and all that? Maybe just for a couple minutes. Sure. So our approach, we, we by and large follow the protocol that, that is described in, in this manuscript. And this protocol is, again, based on spontaneous breathing trial. And so in general, after patients have failed spontaneous breathing trials on successive days, we consider them a candidate for tracheostomy. And uh, at that point, we try to go, the branch point is how, how does one uh, technically do it? Uh, we've my own opinion, uh, and part, partly based on our own investigation, is that we feel that the default uh, procedure is percutaneous tracheostomy. Part of that is uh, convenience for the patient. Uh, the vast majority of the time that can be done in the patient's uh, ICU bed without transporting to the operating room. There's certainly a cost savings in that, and, and that uh, there appears possibly to be some some technical advantages of percutaneous tracheostomy with respect to stomach infection, those sorts of things. So that becomes the default. So if a patient does not have a contraindication to percutaneous tracheostomy, and those con- major contraindications are, say, unstable cervical spine, ambiguous neck anatomy, or difficult uh, airway, which would make it difficult in the event that you lost the airway during this procedure to reestablish it. So um, those patients would be candidates for percutaneous tracheostomy. So we kind of go through that branch point, and those would be the individuals that would undergo percutaneous tracheostomy if they do have a contraindication. We typically do those surgically in um, uh, our operating room where, as, as, where you practice. We're a training institution, and, and uh, one of the things that I think this protocol provides is really a, 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 a useful training tool or residents that uh, come rotate through our service and our unit as to decision-making for tracheostomy, as well as how to do, to do a tracheostomy safely and effectively. I do personally do the tracheostomies myself, as do my partner, so I'm in, kind of involved in all aspects, not only in the decision-making, but also in the, in the technical aspects of it. So just to conclude, and I've been thinking about this as we've been talking today and, and in my ex- previous experience trying to get involved in some academic research in this, the, the, the biggest question in terms of looking at randomized trials, and, and you're obviously profoundly aware of this literature, is this, if you randomize patients, if you and your unit took the next six months and randomized patients to early trach or late trach, uh, there's sort of five different major problems with that. How do you define early? How do you define late? What if a patient that you randomized to late, you were able to get extubated? And, um, you know, you chose not to. I was wondering if you could make some comments on this kind of an issue. I'm sure you must have thought about it designing your current study and potentially some future projects that you think need to be done in this field to hopefully close the book a little bit more on, on the who gets a trach and when. No, I agree. I, I think the question of early versus late, I think that it, I think it, to try to design a trial that, that say, arbitrarily bifurcates into someone who gets a tracheostomy before some arbitrary time point afterwards it has historically been very difficult to uh, pull off for the reasons that you describe. And as I've thought about this, and I, uh, I, I would say, you know, possibly the way to, to uh, uh, tackle the problem would be possibly uh, what we've done in our unit certainly might or might not be transportable to other units, but you know possibly it would provide a framework for thinking about the problem. And if I were going to tackle this, 
I would say bring a group of investigators and clinicians together, say, to develop a protocol as to who these individuals collectively think should uh, have a tracheostomy and, and model a protocol based on that. And I, and I think the study to do would be to compare protocolized care to non-protocolized care. And I think the advantage of doing that is that it would liberate you from some of the challenges of carrying that out within a unit. So you'd have to do somewhat of a cluster-based approach, meaning you would have units where this protocol is in place and have units that w- which were otherwise comparable in which this protocol was not in place and see if you could uh, discern a difference in that fashion. So if I, as I've thought about it, I would say that might be the most plausible way uh, of uh, attacking this problem. And as you know, there's a long history of, of uh, most of the time, fairly poorly powered studies which have attempted to tackle this problem. And at the end of the day, they've all unfortunately been inconclusive. But I, I do think it's an important problem. And as, you're, as uh, you and I are both, both aware, it's a very resource uh, intense patient population. It's one of the most resource intense patient populations in, in, in any uh, hospital setting. And, and that always has implied to me that if possibly, even though it's a minority of patients, if you could optimize care, you might actually uh, translate that into a fairly substantial uh, savings in terms of both of resources as well as uh, tangibly affecting the uh, quality of uh, these patients' ICU existence. Well, uh, Dr. Freeman, I want to thank you for taking some time to be with us today on the podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Bradley D. Freeman. He's an associate professor of surgery at Washington University School of Medicine, and we've been discussing the uh, important topic of who undergoes a tracheostomy and when specifically in the surgical ICU, and the title of his paper is Examination of Non-Clinical Factors Affecting Tracheostomy Practice in an Academic Surgical Intensive Care Unit. Thank you again, Dr. Freeman, for joining us today. Thank you very much for your time. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as full access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program offers hospitals an unparalleled opportunity to benefit from the experiences of peer leaders dedicated to critical care performance improvement. Through the use of engaging tools provided by SCCM and others, Paragon utilizes a combination of self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. Hospitals interested in becoming a Paragon participant to positively transform their critical care units should contact Lori Harmon, RRT, MBA, Paragon Critical Care Manager, at 1-847-493-6403 or via email at lharmon at sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM.
Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.